If you have your Bibles, find Matthew chapter 1. It's, it's the very first page of the New Testament. I've just read to you the first page of the New Testament. And it's a long list of names. It's the family tree for Jesus. But Matthew, who wrote this gospel, in the way he lays out the lineage of Jesus, he's going well beyond what many modern Westerners do when they're doing kind of genealogy research. He's going beyond the notion of bloodline. He's going beyond the notion of relatives. He's telling a story. In fact, what he's doing is he's he's using a genealogy to condense and summarize the entire story of Israel. He starts with its origins in the person of Abraham and he comes all the way to the present moment and he's summarizing this history not in a generic way but in a very particular way. He's making a particular point. Actually, he's making several points. Last week, we looked at the very first line, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. We saw how he's quoting from his translation of the Old Testament. He's quoting from the beginning of Genesis as a way of saying a new beginning is occurring. We saw how Matthew identified Jesus as the key, the focal point, the goal of all of human history. And it isn't only in in the first line that he makes that point, but we saw last week it's in the way he structures the whole thing. He does some um, rather creative accounting practices in order to make the genealogy come up with these three lists of 14. Not as a way of fooling anybody on the math, but everybody in that culture understood it was a way of making an ideological point, a point, a, a kind of, it's like a Republican telling Lincoln's story in order to support Republicans or a Democrat telling Lincoln's story in order to support Democrats. It's like everybody fighting over Jefferson. Well, he was taking his claim and telling the story of history in a certain way to say that all of history has come to this point. To Jesus Christ, who is the goal of history, the center of history, the key to history. Now, last week we saw that he also, he he makes his point not only through his math and not only through his opening line, but he makes his point by establishing a rhythm, a cadence. So-and-so, the father of so-and-so, the father of so-and-so, the father of so-and-so. And then periodically, he breaks rhythm. And it's in those moments when he breaks rhythm that he wants you to shake out of your stupor of these names that are just rolling across the um, kind of backdrop of your mind and focus in. Last week, we saw how he breaks rhythm by mentioning brothers. You don't have to name brothers when you're stretching, when you're tracing one piece of DNA. Hopefully, brothers have nothing to do, right? With that, that's, that's something we frown upon. But he does this in verse 2 and verse 11. He says, Judah and his brothers and Jeconia and his brothers. Last week, we saw how Matthew used this slight break in his cadence in order to make a point. Now, this week, we're going to look at a second break In his cadence. Look at verse 3. Judah the father of Perez and Zerah. By Tamar. 
or Tamar. Verse 5, Solomon, the father of Boaz, by Rahab. And Boaz, the father of Obed, by Ruth. Now, these three names, they stand out. And they capture our attention for two reasons. First of all, they break the rhythm. It's no longer the father of so-and-so, who was the father of so-and-so, who was the father of so-and-so. Sudden of all, he syncopates and he says, who was married to. Now, that's one reason the name stand out. The second reason the name stand out is genealogies, like we said last week, only require parents. Therefore, naming the brothers is a break. But here's the other key. In Israel, lineage had nothing to do with the female. Women were unnecessary. For establishing lineage in Israel, it only required men. Descent was not traced through the female line. So the inclusion of three women breaks the formula of how that culture, different cultures, different ways, how that culture traced lineage. It draws our attention. And then suddenly we discover it's not really three women. Look at the second half of verse 6. And David was the father of Solomon by... Now, what should he do here? He should name the wife. He's already done that three times, right? He's already said by... And what were the three wives? By Tamar in verse 3. By Rahab in verse 5. By Ruth in verse, in the verse 5. And then in verse 6, he's established a new rhythm, right? He's established a counterpoint. What should he name? What is her name? Bathsheba. He doesn't name her. He's not wanting you to think about her. Who is he wanting you to think? See, here he breaks his rhythm that broke his rhythm. That's drawing a lot of attention. Not only is Uriah not needed because he had nothing to do with this. Because the father was Uriah's ex-wife, right? Uriah was murdered by David, who then married Bathsheba, and they had Solomon. Why does he name the dead ex-husband? Who, on a genetic level, has nothing to do with the lineage. So it's not about three women. It's not even about four women. It's about four people. Now what you've got to do is ask what they have in common. I don't have time to go into this. But in this type of, in this genre of literature, it's not what each one do in and of themselves. It's what they all have in common together. Now, we saw this last week when we saw that Judah and his brothers and Jeconia and his brothers had in common what? That they laid down their life sacrificially. So what do these four characters have in common? Well, what Matthew is doing is he's writing to Christians and he just assumes that Christians know all of the stories behind all of these names by heart. And if you don't, you're at a tremendous disadvantage. See, he's expecting that when he names these stories, they evoke, these characters, they evoke in your mind stories. Now, what, if you knew the Old Testament and you had all of these stories running around in your mind, here's what would coalesce. They are all praiseworthy Gentiles. That's what they have in common. They're all Uriah the, those of you who know the Bible, Hittite. That's right. Ruth the Moabite. You just go down the line. They are all praiseworthy Gentiles. Now, 
For some of you who have been around the Christian scene and Bible studies, you'll hear people talking about the four scandalous women in Jesus' family tree. The problem with that reading is it's not paying attention to the Old Testament because the Old Testament doesn't, first of all, it doesn't name four women. It never names Bathsheba. It says, by, and you expect her name, and then he comes in with a left hook. You should pay attention, right? And what is it? It's Uriah. They're not four women. Bathsheba's not named. It's Uriah. The women are not characterized furthermore in the Old Testament, nor are they characterized in the New Testament by their sin. Now you can think Bathsheba was characterized by her sin. Those of you who know the Old Testament, you know that um, Rahab had a certain sinfulness in her past, but read the stories the way the Jews told them. That is not the focus of her. That is not her character in the stories. All four of these women in the stories of the Old Testament, the point about them is not their sinfulness. You'd, You'd have a hard time finding any sinfulness in Ruth. You've got to stretch it. The point, and take Uriah. What did he do? Do you know the story? I encourage you to turn there and to read it. Not right now, but at another point in time when somebody else is talking and you're bored. (laughs) They're not characterized by their sin. They are always characterized by two things. Their ethnicity and their righteousness. Tamar. Genesis 38 verse 11. We see that she's not Jewish. In fact, she comes from the enemy of the Jews. The Canaanites. And listen to what it says about her when it sums up her life. Now, last week I talked about a fairly scandalous episode in her life when she dressed up like a prostitute and had an affair with her former father-in-law. But when you read it in context, listen to what it says in Genesis 38 verse 26. At the, at the climax of the whole story of what happened with her, this is Judah identified them and said, she is more righteous than I. The Old Testament characterizes her as a righteous woman. That's the story that should come in your mind. Not the story out of some children's Bible that misses the point. But the story out of the Jewish scriptures, the Old Testament, that makes the point of her righteousness. And what about Rahab? Well, like Tamar, Rahab is a Canaanite. And like Tamar, she did indeed have experience as a prostitute. But in the story of of Rahab's life, Joshua chapter 2, that's incidental. It's minor. The point that is made multiple times is that she is, in the the Hebrew word, hesed, faithful. Which is a prime characteristic of God in the Old Testament. The point that the scriptures make about her is not her scandalous nature. It is her remarkable faithfulness and not only the old testament she comes up three times in the new testament here the next time anybody know hebrews chapter 11 where she's listed as an example and then in james chapter 2 where she is listed as an example of faithfulness and then there's ruth who is a moabite and there's an entire book of the old testament dedicated to her righteousness to her faithfulness to god And to his people. And then, of course, there's Uriah. And if you've not ever read the story, I encourage you to read it. 2 Samuel chapter 11, 
Uriah is a Hittite who is impeccable, praiseworthy. His character is unimpeachable. The common point of all four is not their belief in God, not a scandalous past. It is righteous behavior that flows out of their belief in God. But it's not, the focus of all four is not their righteous behavior that flows out of their belief in God. It's on their righteous behavior. Don't jump so quickly to even their belief because the text doesn't emphasize that point. Is it there? Absolutely. Is it critical? Absolutely. Is it fundamental? Yes. Is it negotiable? No. But it's not the point of the literature. The point of the literature is righteous behavior. Now, if Matthew wanted to evoke a of a series of rascals, a series of sinners, he's already done it. Two people in this list top anything these four have done, David and Judah. That's not the point of these four. He didn't bootleg these four in. He didn't change his rhythm and then even change the rhythm again in order to make that point. That point is well made by the time you just get through David's life and Judah's life. No, these, they are, they are the examples of sinners in that story. And that's an important point when you're reading through the genealogy is that God can save you from your sins. And and no matter where you've been in life, all of that's important. All of that's there. It's not in these four. What we see in these four is behavior that is righteous. They are remarkable models of moral excellence. They are paradigms. Of good works. And you see. Do you see how many of us. Our evangelical Protestant emphasis. On justification by faith. Access causes us. To first of all skip over Uriah. And insert Bathsheba in there. So that we can get four people. That have been justified by faith. That's the point of their life. When it's actually making a very different point. Now why does Matthew do that? Why does he evoke these people in their stories? Well, there's a number of reasons. One big one is that Gentiles can be reconciled to God. Whole sermon. Not going to preach it this morning. I want us to focus on one big point, and it's this. Matthew is telling us God cares about your behavior. God cares about righteousness. It matters to God. Salvation is a gift. It is never something you can earn. You can never put God in your debt. You always are in his debt. But that does not mean that once you're saved by faith in Christ, God suddenly ceases to care about your behavior. So yes, the Bible is absolutely clear about the fact that we cannot make ourselves fit for God. We cannot pull ourselves up to God's moral standard by our own efforts. But this never means that we can simply shrug our shoulders and give up the moral struggle for righteousness in our own lives. Yes, God loves us as we are. And yes, that is the never-ending wonder at the heart of Christianity that God has come to meet us 
While we were yet sinners, Christ died. He comes to meet us in our confusion and in our pride. He comes to meet us in the middle of our mess and our muddle and our downright rebellion and sin. And that's the point of the Christian gospel. That is the point of the good news. This is the most famous verse in the Bible. This is how much God loved the world. That he sent his only son, Jesus Christ. So that anyone who believes in him will not die, but will have life. The life of the age to come. God love, God's love comes to us where we are. And all we have to do is accept it. And yet, it is a mistake to take that reality, that truth, that amazing, mind-boggling sense of God's love and mercy and grace... And to use it to think that God doesn't care about your behavior. Look, today is the second Sunday of Advent. Advent is the season that starts four Sundays before Christmas. And it goes up until sundown on Christmas Eve. And the season of Advent is complicated. It's the most complex of all the seasons. Because it's actually about two different historical moments that are umbilically related. Two different advents. Advent means coming. The first advent when Jesus Christ was born and baptized. The second advent, the great and massive moment that is still to come when Jesus returns. You see, the central promise of Christianity is that the one and only God that exists, the creator God, Yahweh, Israel's God, this God will return in glory. He will bring all things to completion. He will overcome all enemies. He will vindicate his people and establish his kingdom forever. Both the Old and the New Testaments promise that one day, the God who created the world, will flood it with his glory, will transform it so it thrills and throbs with his love and justice and peace. That is the promise of both the Old and the New Testament. And in the New Testament, you know what that day is called? The day of the Lord. And you know what its primary characteristic is? Judgment. All through the Bible... The primary characteristic of God's advent is judgment. Now, not simply condemnation. Now, see, the reason a lot of us hear the word judgment is condemnation is because this weird postmodern move, judgment becomes judgmental. And so no longer can there be any judgment. Well, you think judgment is bad only, only when you haven't been wronged. You know what happens to a society where there's no longer judgment? Do you know what would happen to you if rightness wasn't upheld? No, no, no. The the judgment of the day of the Lord will be judgment in the more ancient biblical sense. It'll be the time when everything gets sorted out. When everything that needs putting right is put right. It'll be a time when all the secrets... Are disclosed. 
when the quality of work done by the Lord's people will be revealed. When in particular, those who have borne fruit through their work will receive their proper reward. The day of the Lord Jesus is when God himself will come back once and for all to call the whole world to account, including you. As he establishes his kingdom of justice and mercy and peace and delight. So you see, we need the season of Advent because that day is coming. You will stand before him and be judged for your works. Believing in God does not let you off the hook of that judgment. There is coming a day and we need to be ready. So we need Advent. We need Advent not only to resist the insane, idolatrous commercialization of Christmas that has just taken over our goofy culture. I mean, we need it for that. We need to push back on the Christmas carols. Wait, wait. You got business you need to tend to before you sing joy to the world. There's repentance that needs to be done. There's preparation that needs. We need to push back on all that crazy commercialism. But there's more. We also need to get ready for the coming of the one. There is an advent to come. We need to get ready for the coming of the one who will sweep through God's world and through God's people like a fire through a forest in California. California at the end of the dry season. That's the imagery of the Bible. I didn't make that up. Have you been reading the scripture from our Advent devotionals? I hope that you have. If you haven't, there's copies of them in the foyer. They look like this. I hope that you've been reading these scriptures. If you've been reading some other Advent devotional, good, great. Just be careful. If it doesn't bring you to this issue. Because if it doesn't bring you to this issue, there's a good chance it's merely sentimentalized. A very real thing that must be on your radar. The scripture passages for Advent, they present a consistent picture of the return of Christ when he will judge the whole world. And over and over, we see... That he does not separate the sheep from the goats based on their belief. Those of you who know the story, what does he separate the sheep from the goats based on? Their behavior. The kind of life they've lived. Listen to 2 Corinthians chapter 5 verse 10. For we must, this is Paul writing to Christians, okay? People have been justified by faith. We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. So that what? Those who have had faith or said welcome in? No. You're conflating two different judgments. So that each one. Who? Each Christian. Each justified person may receive what is due for what he has done in the body. Whether good or evil. The Bible never says anything else. About the coming of Christ. Now Advent is a season that we are called to consider the sort of life that will pass Christ's ultimate inspection. 
And it's not just Matthew 25. We don't have time, but Isaiah 58. This incredible, you should read this during Advent. This incredible call to what true fasting is. These passages, Matthew 25, Isaiah chapter 58. These are two key passages in the Bible that trace the shape of a righteous life. Now, let me encourage you to be afraid. Because that's what the Bible says. The secrets will be exposed. The things done in darkness will be brought to light. So let me encourage you to prepare. (laughs) Prepare for this. That's what scripture tells us over and over and over. Look, I went on and on. Okay, I gave a couple of paragraphs to justification by faith. I'm not stepping away from that at all. But I am saying that if you use that to say, shrug your head about behavior as if it doesn't matter, you're wrong. These two things fit together. And the emphasis on works doesn't release release you of the call to faith. But listen, the emphasis on faith does in no way let you off the hook. For the searing inspection of Christ. Now let me encourage you over the next few weeks of preparation to think in terms of three issues. If you take notes, write these down. One is Luke chapter 25. Luke chapter 25. I'm sorry. Luke chapter 10. Yeah. No wonder he's saying all this stuff. (laughs) Luke chapter 10, verse 25 through 37. It's the parable of the Good Samaritan. You will be judged if you live this out or not. Love your neighbor. You will be judged on that. You will be held accountable for that. And all the secret stuff will be brought to light. And in this passage, there is a religious person that tries to get out from under it by saying, Oh yeah, well who's my neighbor? And remember that Jesus said your neighbor is anyone you come in contact with who lacks resources. That's the point of the story. And you will be judged. Prepare. Anyone you come in contact with. That's the point of the story. Anybody you just happen by down the street that is lacking resources. That's your neighbor. That's who you will be held accountable for loving. 1 John chapter 3 number 2. So this Advent, sit with Luke chapter 10. Sit with the love of a neighbor, those who lack resources. Let God convict you of the ways in which you are in trouble. And repent. You can do it. You can repent. You've got the Spirit of God inside of you. You can come in line with God's ways. Number 2, 1 John chapter 3 verse 17. If anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need... Yet closes his heart against him. How does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. Number two is this. Provide 
the most basic and simple needs of others through acts of service. You will be held accountable for that. That's what Isaiah 58 says. You know what a time of preparation is, Isaiah 58 says? Do this kind of stuff with people. Look, earlier I referenced Matthew 25, the story Jesus told about sheep and the goats. The sheep inherit the kingdom because, why? They feed Jesus when he's hungry. They, they inherit the kingdom because they clothe him when he's naked. Because they visit him when he's sick and in prison. Welcome him when he's a stranger. Don't turn that into an allegory. Just do it. Start at least there. Before you abstract it up to some principle that no longer has bite in your life. Clothe the naked. Do you know that in our community right now, there are people who are profoundly exposed to the element because of their lack of clothing? Do you know that? Don't use their laziness as your excuse because one day you will stand before the judgment seat of Christ and he is not going to allegorize this passage. Micah chapter 6 verse 8. A third way. Number one. Love your neighbor. And your neighbor is anyone who lacks resources that you come in contact with. Number two. Provide the most basic and simple needs of others through acts of service. And number three. Micah. Micah chapter 6 verse 8. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? This is talking about the return of Christ, by the way. What are you going to come to that moment with? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings and calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of ram, with ten thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? No. He has told you, O oh man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? What does the Lord require? What does he require? Do justice. Love mercy. And walk humbly with your God. He will require that of you on the day when he analyzes your life like it has never been analyzed before. You know what? I, here's the way I sum up Micah 6 eight. Disadvantage yourself in order to bring advantage to others. We will be held accountable for that. Now look, all three of these, it's not about one-off behavior. It's about becoming the type of person for whom this is your instinctive way of living. That you love those whom you come in contact with who lacked resources. That you provide as, as an act of habit the most basic and simple needs of others through acts of service. And that you, it is your character, it is your, your second nature to disadvantage yourself in order to bring advantage to others. Now look, all three of those things will not fit you when you first start doing them. They'll be hard. We get so used to stepping to the other side of the street. 
that that's our nature. It takes a a tremendous act of self-conscious decision-making to not run away from the naked person coming toward you. But we will be judged for our characters. And let me just bring this home in four particular ways to our church at this moment in the life of Harrisonburg. Number one, Salvation Army is in a bad state. If Salvation Army fails, what's going to happen? With not the most vulnerable in our society, it's actually one step up. Hearts is covering the most vulnerable. You can show up at Hearts if you're drunk, if you've got a record, if you don't have a driver's license. And that's why in a few weeks our church is going to be part of hosting Hearts. But one step up from that is Salvation Army, and it is in dire straits in our city. What are we going to do? It's complicated. (laughs) But let me tell you, standing before the judge and saying, it was so complicated. That That doesn't work in calculus. What makes you think it will work at the seat of Christ? Number two, we have a food problem in Harrisonburg. Uh, Thursday night was the last session of essentials uh, for this round. And... um, we were talking about this whole issue of, of existing for the good of our community. And um, because when our church helps people, we've accumulated a whole list of um, resources in our community for vulnerable people. And there's a lot of food pantries on it. I made the mistaking assumption that food's not an issue in Harrisonburg. And I said that. And Tracy Koblish very kindly corrected me. And she made a great point. Would you like to live on a diet of canned food? There's a tremendous need in our community for fresh food. And you know what? It's very complicated because they can't cook it. But like I said, Lord, it was too complicated. Look, we have incredible resources in our community for figuring out very complicated issues. We've got people in our community who can figure out how to renovate massive buildings. With government tax credits. They can navigate all kinds of systems. There are people in this room. And you have applied your intelligence. To incredibly complex things. So it's complicated. doesn't matter. Laziness. It doesn't matter to some extent. There's a food problem in our community. And I don't know how to fix it. I don't know how to develop the infrastructure for it. Even if we started gathering together fresh food, I, don't, I have no idea how to get it from that point into the hands of people who can't cook it and how to store it. I mean, it's massively complicated, but you guys work in very complicated fields. When, when did complicated ever daunt the human race? Number three. Um, last Sunday night, no, 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 no. Last time I spoke to the, to the youth, maybe it was last Sunday night, Um, I don't know if you know, but the homeless in our community, a lot of times they sleep in the woods. And so you you probably don't even know about all the woods around Harrisonburg because you're not homeless. But if you were homeless, you would know where they are. And one of the main stands of woods that homeless in our community sleep in is right over there, right behind LNS Diner. And I was preaching to the youth um, a couple of weeks ago on Sunday night. And right at the end, a man came up 
drunk off his gourd, bloodshot eyes, reeking of it all. And it was, a, it was one of those, remember when it was like in the teens for a little bit, it was really cold. And he asked me if we had a place for him to stay. And I said, no. I said, what about Hearts? He said, Hearts is full. Hearts is the bottom, right? Hearts is the only place you can go if you've got a record or if you don't have a driver's license or if you're drunk. And you know what I said to him? I got nothing for you. I, I don't. I don't know what to do. So we were talking about this. And so Janelle's decided that she and uh, Sloan, um, who prays for the homeless every night, they're going to come on, on Wednesdays. We're going to try to figure out a way. And we're going to purchase sleeping bags. And um, we're going to provide them. Now, I, look, it's simple. It's just start, you know, start somewhere. If you're interested in being a part of that, um, talk to Janelle or figure out your own things. I mean, we've got, we've got, these are the three things, right? Provide the most basic and simple needs of others through the acts of service. Disadvantage yourself, right? Eat out one last time and buy a sleeping bag. One more, one more. Last point. The, the greatest housing need in Harrisonburg is for permanent supportive housing. Permanent supportive housing. Uh, in the 70s, they deregulated the mental health facilities in the United States. That means a lot of people who um, were living in mental health facilities because they didn't have the mental abilities to take care of themselves were kicked out. You know where they are? They're on the street. Okay? The, the greatest housing need in Harrisonburg... By the way, if this is boring you because it's so far from the Bible, this is where the Bible pushes you into the regulations and zonings of your neighborhood, okay? So here's what happened. When we deregulated the mental health facilities, they all landed on the streets. Homeless population spiked. In the United States, to be considered permanently homeless by Herbin, uh, Herbin, HUD, Housing and Urban Development, you have to have two issues. You have to have a chemical dependency of some sort, and you have to have some co-occurring disorder in almost that's one. And then the second one is you have to not live in a house that's fit, that's, um, fit for human dwelling three or more times a year. These two co-occurring disorders are always chemical dependency, almost always, and some sort of mental um, incapacity. Um, you know where Aaron Cook is this morning? Aaron Cook entered a film in the uh, Super 8 of Roger. I don't know if y'all know Roger. He's a homeless guy that's been working at uh, Stripes Donuts. And, and uh, the film was What Roger Sees. And, and in one of his interviews, Aaron heard Roger say he's always wanted to go to a Steelers game. So Aaron, Hanson, and Sam have found Roger and taken him to a Steelers game this morning. Right? This, is, this is a profoundly human response, right? Um. Most of the homeless people you see on our streets are going to have those two things. There's going to be a mental issue and there's going to be some sort of chemical dependency. What came first? Who knows? Adult onset schizophrenia, which, is, which happens to people in their 20s. And then you can't hold your life together. So you end up on the streets. So you start drinking. It would drive you to drinking or drugs. Or you're a functioning adult alcoholic. You hold it together, hold it together. And then the wheels fall off. You land on the streets. And if you're there very long, you're going to develop mental disorders too. So which occurs first? We don't know. Okay. But they're on our streets. And there's, a, there's many of them who could live in three to 500 square foot dwelling places if all the government agencies were involved. It's called permanent supportive housing where all the support mechanisms are there. If one of my children has adult onset schizophrenia, I hope they live in a city that has permanent supportive housing. Because if they don't and I'm not there... Do you know where my children and yours will be? 
This is the greatest housing need in Harrisonburg. It's not lofts. It's very complicated. There's lots of government red tape, but no more government red tape than there is for all this other stuff we deal with. So the the recommendation of the federal government is to build projects of permanent supportive housing units. So you take those with chemical dependencies and mental disorders and you put them outside of town altogether. And now we as a community don't have to look at them anymore. And it's very efficient. But you know what a community really needs to do? Permanent integrated supportive housing. We need to build these houses throughout our neighborhoods, which is hard to talk homeowners into letting crazy drunk people live next to them. Because it's tricky. But there are other communities that have done it. Now, this is a long diversion, but this is what you've got to take. Love your neighbor to these levels, because until you get to these levels, you've let yourself off the hook. This is where the fight goes. This is what we will be judged for. This is what it means to love justice and to do mercy. Not when it comes easy, not when it's simple, not when it doesn't require tremendous higher level thinking. This is what Advent is about. It is to prepare ourselves to stand before the judgment seat of Christ. Where the secrets of all of our hearts will be exposed. And we will be held accountable. May it be said of the church of the incarnation. May it be said of us. Like it was said of Rahab and Tamar. And Ruth and Uriah. They were righteous people. They were exemplars of moral excellence. Let's pray.